Welcome to Flow Stars, candid conversations between Dr. Peter O'Toole and the big hitters of flow cytometry. Brought to you by Beckman Coulter at Bitesize Bio. In this episode of Flow Stars, Paul Robinson tells us more about how nothing should get in the way of good lab photo shoot. I actually used to do stuff in those days, but yeah, the, the fact that I, I'm at eye level with with where the lasers would be coming would be a real you know, <laughs> no-brainer for most people. And why walking away sometimes takes the most courage. It, it's much better to do those things when you're young and stupid as opposed to when you're older and stupid. How he came to climb Mount Everest. I walked away from running a, a big core lab because I, I decided that uh, it was restricting what I needed to do myself. All in this episode of Flow Stars. Hi, I'm Peter O'Toole, and today on Flow Stars, I'm joined by Paul Robinson, uh, who I think everyone will know. And actually, when I when I started Flow Cytometry, he was the lead name out there. And I remember my first Isaac meeting, and Paul, I think, was the president at that time, back in around 2004, five time. Uh, so, so Paul was, you know, one of the gods of flow cytometry that I all looked up to. So actually, it's brilliant to welcome Paul today. Paul, morning. Thank you, Peter. Yeah, it is morning. Yes. <laughs> it's a dreary afternoon over here today for us. So, Paul, obviously, I know you from your career, but where were you born? Uh, well, I was born in the bush, actually, um, in northern New South Wales in a small country in the other side of the Pacific. So that, that'd be Australia then? Oh, yeah, some people use that term, yes. Just, just that small country itself. So that, that explains your, uh, you did your PhD in immunology, if I'm yes. correct, uh, in University of New South Wales, which is in Sydney. Yes. Do you miss it? What, immunology, Sydney, New South Wales? <laughs> Sydney itself in Australia. I do, I, I really miss it at the moment because we're, we're unable to travel. So I usually am in Sydney at least a couple of times a year. And uh, right now with this uh, virus, we're unable to travel. So yeah, Sydney is a, a great city and um, yeah, we're very grateful to you lot because uh, if you hadn't uh, shipped us all out there, we, we, we wouldn't exist. <laughs> I've got silly jokes I could play on that. I'm not allowed to say them. <laughs> <laughs> I guess the easiest way, you're a man of conviction is probably the right word to use. <laughs> I like that one, yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I, I was in Sydney not that long ago before before all this and I've got to say I found it one of the friendliest cities I have actually been to ever and York is wonderfully friendly but oh my goodness people in Sydney seem so chilled everyone says hello if I'm out running early doors so super friendly so I don't know what it's like where you are now is it a super friendly place that you're living now or how does it compare well you know um, when we we moved uh to the United States, um, we, we, we moved to small uh, college towns and uh, sort of unique about America. Oh, and I, I'm not 
even going to attempt to compare these small college towns to the small college towns just outside of London that you might have heard of. Um, but this is the way America exists. They're these small towns that have large academic institutions in them, very what we would call decentralized in Australia, where everything is in the cities. Um, and here you, you have these small towns, which are really great for bringing, bringing up families and uh, very safe, but they're, they're not exactly the most exciting environments. Perhaps, you know, the, 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 uh, the, there, are, there are no beaches and, uh, you know, there are a few things that are missing, let's put it that way. So why did you move to the USA? Well, I, uh, I, I, came, I, I came to do a postdoc, actually. And it was only intended to be a two-year postdoc. And it, it sort of extended. <clears throat> so you enjoyed your postdoc. So what was your postdoc in? What were you actually doing, your postdoc? Um, I, I, well, I visited, um, <laughs> I visited two places. Uh, I visited the NIH and, um, and, and then uh, Ann Arbor, Michigan. And I interviewed in both places. And um, I actually vividly remember walking into Tony Fauci's lab uh, in 1983. Um, uh, and I was visiting uh, John Gallen's lab at that time. And then I, I came to Ann Arbor and came home and Michigan made me the offer. I took it immediately thinking, you know, okay, take whatever, whatever comes. And I, I, I worked in Peter Ward's lab at the University of Michigan. Uh, and uh, it was focused mostly on burn injuries, the immunology of burns, which was a big area in Peter's lab. So that's really where I, I cut my teeth. So from there, what was your first contact with a flow cytometer? Well, it was well before that. Um, I, uh, when, I was, when I was a graduate student um, in St. Vincent's Hospital in Sydney, which is where the University of New South Wales Immunology Department was, um, I was a graduate student and Typical in those days, there was a lot less ad, ad, administratium around, and I um, I ended up sort of ma managing the department. Managing is a big word, but no one did anything. No one was in charge of anything, like ordering materials, and I just sort of took over that job because I found out that as a PhD student. Uh, if you took over those roles, you could order anything you wanted. So I, 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 it was purely selfish. But my boss came into uh, the lab one day um, and said, we need a flow cytometer. And I had no idea what he was talking about. This was like 1979. And um, he said, oh, there's, um, there's a paper in the literature uh, and we had journal club and he told me, uh, please review this paper. And I distinctly remember 
having to explain to our journal club what a histogram was. And I had no idea what I was talking about. I, I really had no idea. I, I, it, it was completely foreign to me. And I probably just made it up. And um, I, I was, um, it was fascinating. And then he said, okay, we're going to buy one of these things. Go, uh, go find out, you know, what the, where, the, where you can get one. And so I did some traveling and uh, we ended up bringing the first Coulter Epics 5 into, into Australia. There, there was the only one. Everything else was ortho, I think, at the time. And um, <clears throat> um, so that's where I cut my, my teeth on flow cytometry. I really didn't do any flow cytometry much. I, I helped a little bit. Graham Chapman uh, said it was hired and Graham ran, ran the unit and um, um, I learned a little bit. But uh, then I went to Michigan and we did just tons of flow cytometry. So that's where I started. And never looked back after that. So I, you, you, obviously your career's developed significantly uh, to where you are now with your professor of cytomics, which I guess professor of cytomics wouldn't have even existed as a position back in the early 80s. Uh, so how did you how did you progress your career into into your current position? Um, well, as a, I started as a postdoc and then I got a junior faculty position, and I I wrote an NIH grant uh, as a post as a postdoc, and and got that grant um, only to find out that. Um, to take the grant, I actually had to have um, a permanent residency in the United States, which nobody had thought about uh, in 1985, I think it was, or six. And so I got, um, we, had to, we had to decide to stick around and it was a lot of money. So it was definitely worthwhile <clears throat> and um, I, I, I moved then after I got that grant, um, I got made offers of jobs, which I also found rather fascinating sort of thing that happens in the United States that I would never have thought about, I think, in Australia at the time anyway. Um, and then I got made an offer to come to Purdue <clears throat> to set to, to, to build my own lab. <clears throat> which was a bit of a shock, you know, I really had to start off from scratch. And um, I uh, moved from a very active big lab to my own lab where uh, I, I had to do everything. So, so um, in those days, it took about three months to purchase anything. You needed a pipette or a reagent. You would fill out a, a form with a, a with a pen, um, and you would submit that to somebody who would type it up. Who would submit it to somebody else who would probably retype it, 
and it would get submitted around the system. And about three months later, if you were lucky, the, the item would turn up. So there was nothing to do. I mean, I had an empty lab. I was trying to order everything. And that's when I sat down and wrote the handbook of flow cytometry methods, because okay. I, had, I had to train people <clears throat> and um, <clears throat> there were no methods. How, how do you do basic phenotyping? <clears throat> I had a flow cytometer, <clears throat> but I didn't have anything, any, any, any um, instruction book. So I, I wrote out the handbook of flow cytometry methods. And I think that's really where my career started with that stupid book. So what year was that? Um, 1988. So you probably really did write it out. <laughs> probably. I bet. No, actually, uh, I wrote it. Uh, I did. I did. I did do it on on uh, on a computer and wrote it in Word. Actually, the earliest version of Word that uh, probably came out. And um, yeah, um, and we printed it. Yeah, mm -hmm. was that Word or Word Perfect? Could have been Word Perfect. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Back back at that time. So this must have been very close to that time. Oh my glory. Well, as you see, I dye my hair now. <laughs> oh, that's an amazing picture. It'd be hard to recognize you there, whereas actually if you go back in time. Oh, that's, uh, that's when I was in the St. Vincent's Hospital, yeah. That must have been in the early 80s. It's definitely me because it's got my name on it, but apart from that. I, I can tell you, you sent loads of pictures. What are you drinking? I think somebody put some dry ice into something that I was drinking and, uh, and it, 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 somebody took a photograph, yeah. Yeah, so, so, so now this is looking far more familiar. Uh, in that. So what, what, what are you actually working on here? I don't think I was working on anything. Some anything. Uh, publicity person wanted to take a photograph and I had to pretend that I was doing something. I actually used to do stuff in those days, but yeah, the, the fact that I, I'm at eye level with, with where the lasers would be coming would be a real you know, no brainer for most people, but, but uh, publicity people took that photo because it's far too good a photo for, for us to have taken in the lab. And, and I guess this is also quite a famous, your dicky bow, which you were quite famous for, for a short while as well. Uh, that one was published in the Wall Street Journal when they were talking about the administrative load in universities. And uh, that's also a posed photograph, obviously, mm -hmm. taken by a professional. Uh, Most of my photographs are actually real life. I love, I love it. In fact, if we came to your lab, we just found you standing like that most of the time. Yeah. That would be <laughs> more surreal. I, I take it you started to get camera shy by this point. <laughs> yes. Well, some of your colleagues in the, the UK did that at, at an ISAC meeting. It was great. That was uh, Paul Smith and co, I presume. Yep. Yep. By yeah. a status, uh, I yes. think it was. Yeah. Yeah, uh, actually, Paul, actually, as part of these, I've uh, talked to Paul Smith as well because he's got an amazing track record, very diverse track record. Yeah. Uh, very, I don't know how he does so much in his time. I just, don't know either. He really is an amazing person. It, it's, it's quite incredible just how diverse everything does. So, so, obviously, we all know you for Purdue, but I guess 
most famously at Purdue is the flow cytometry listserv, the Purdue listserv itself, which is, uh, you're going to have had loads of impacts in your scientific career, but I would argue this is probably the biggest fundamental impact that anyone could have is to set up a listserv that is so successful. I, how many people now subscribe to this listserv? It's over four and a half thousand. <clears throat> we, we had 15 or 10 or 15 a week and a few people drop off, but it's, it's been steady at four and a half thousand for a couple of years. <clears throat> that, that, that is huge. And for those who don't know what the listserv is, uh, you really should. Uh, there's one for microscopy for advanced <laughs> microscopy but this is the one for flow cytometry which is just if you have a problem I mean a flow cytometry problem not a personal problem this is where you can post your question uh, and you'll get an answer you know very very rapidly from all over the world you get good advice tips tricks if you're uncertain about which way to go on something the advice is always there the troubleshooting the best way to design a protocol for something to troubleshoot it to have that resource is better than any textbook any publication because you get the real methods the real answers and then you've got the contact you can follow up afterwards offline if you want a bit more detail and stuff so so actually thank you for that because that is just <clears throat> an awesome listserv it takes an effort to do anything like this and to get it enough momentum. I mean, there's other listservs that have been tried or different forums, but they never gain traction. So where did the idea come from and how, how did it become so successful? Um, it, it started in 1989 when uh, I, I um, started doing email. And um, I used to check my email at least once a month um, because, you know, you wanted to see if anyone had actually sent you a message. And Steve Kelly uh, came with me from Michigan. Steve uh, ran our computer systems. And when I moved from Michigan to Purdue, Steve came with me and uh, we set up uh, our systems in the lab. And um, we, we started talking about the, how to share data. And um, so we, we uh, Steve set up, um, a, I actually made a few phone calls. I called people, hey, you know, do you have an email? And most people said, what are you talking about? And I would explain. And, and so we got about 10 people and we started communicating at, you know, about once a month. And by about 1990, we had uh, 50 or 100 people on the list. And um, it, it's, we started this sort of um, communication. And um, by, by the early 90s, enough people had email that, they, they found it useful. And we actually still have the archive back, I think to 1991 <clears throat> or 92, I can't remember. We lost the first couple of years just in moving computer systems from one to another. But um, 
Yeah, I, I remember when uh, Spisak Darzenkevich came to my lab in the early 1990s <clears throat> and I showed, <clears throat> excuse me, I showed it to him and he was amazed. And he said, help me get an email address. And when he went back to New York, he called me and he had someone from their IT person. And I, we, we set him up his email address and he got onto the list. And as you know, people like Darzenkevich and, and others, Howard Shapiro, Maria Rotera, the, the, you know, the core people in the field use it all the time. And Spisak was one of those people. So that's how it, that's how it was set up. And, you know, um, I monitor that darn thing every single day, um, every morning, because it is a monitored list. Um, you, you mentioned in jest that people don't put their personal problems, but actually some do. And that's the reason it's monitored. Uh, some people accidentally send private messages. And so if, you know, if I see that, I, I sort of send it back to them and say, you know, I don't think you want this to go out to the list. Um, but uh, we've, it takes work. Everything that, that um, I think is worthwhile doing takes work. And so um, it's been um, a labor of love, I think. Yeah, because this is completely neutral. There's, 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 there's no sponsorship. There's no money for this. This is something that is purely a, a personal charitable uh, contribution to the, to the, to the, you know, the, the network, the group, you know, to the world of flow cytometry and actually reading, checking all of them in first thing is quite a task yep. to be checking that everything is kosher and not inappropriate. Cause obviously <clears throat> every now and then turning called squeak through on some of the other list serves. And yeah, I, I actually, it kind of makes it exciting. <laughs> 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 well, you know, occasionally, occasionally uh, there's a there's a there's a, a small blow up. Somebody gets angry with somebody, and uh, and there's uh, there's there's some interaction. But it, it's a I think it's a very scientific and stable environment. And you know we haven't changed it much. People have said, "Oh, can you add this and do that?" And we've thought of it many many times, but um, the um, amount of work would go up exponentially and since it works the way it is now I've, I've just left it as it is. Talking of going up exponentially you climbed Mount Everest what year was that? 2009. Climbing Mount Everest is a massive feat. Well yeah it, it's probably my highest achievement. Well certainly you reached the peak of your career at that point I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah well if you haven't got um I could I could bring this this in if you uh, wow this this I keep this in my office um, mainly to keep graduate students under control but uh, it's uh, this has been to the top that that's a giant toothpick it is a giant toothpick oh <laughs> you climbed Everest again you paid yourself to climb Everest and it's not insignificant in the training you know it, 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 you have to climb so many peaks I believe and it costs quite a lot of money thank you Paul uh, quite a lot of money to actually train to, to before you can even start to climb Everest and accepted to do that but 
it's your endeavor, you paid for that. But not everyone does that. A lot of people raise money for charity and use some of that to do it. Well, you didn't do that. You did, you paid for everything yourself, but then raised money 100% for charity. And that charity, tell us about the charity you raised it for. <clears throat> well, I had this uh, crazy idea that, that um, in, the, in the days when uh, CD4 was uh, one of the most important tests for HIV, and I had the idea that we should be able to do this very inexpensively and also in remote regions. And uh, we, um, we designed a small flow cytometer, very small, very inexpensive. And um, I tried to get companies to buy into the idea. Um, I, I really I hit my head against a brick wall. Um, and it sort of is obvious when you look back at it. But, you know, if you can build a small instrument for a few thousand dollars that just does one thing, there's no profit in it. And so companies are not going to get involved. And, you know, I even went to the, I don't know whether I should mention names, but I went to the Gates Foundation and tried to get them to buy in. And they, and I met with them and explained the idea and they were heavily involved, you know, in HIV. And they, they said to me, well, you know, if you can't build it and distribute it for $500, we're not interested. And I just said to them, <clears throat> what are you drinking? You know, <clears throat> this, is, this is insanity. You, you will not do it for $500. But um, it, it, it drove me to distraction, actually. I, I, I really, uh, I think I got angry about it. And I said to myself one day, in a fit of anger, <clears throat> it would be easier to climb Mount Everest than it would be to, to get the small instruments to solve this problem in remote regions. And it occurred to me that, well, I, I really failed. To, to, to solve this problem. I, I just couldn't get the buy-in. And, 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 you know, lots of companies were spending tons of money, but very expensive instruments and uh, doing their best. I'm not trying to, I'm not being critical, but it just seemed to me that it wasn't solving the problem. And so um, that's when I decided to set up this foundation, uh, which we called Cytometry for Life. And um, I, I went off and, and, and did what, uh, just to prove to myself that um, it, it wasn't me, <laughs> just, it wasn't just me that was failing, even though I think I, I considered a huge failure uh, to, to not be able to solve this problem. And that's really, the, that was really the driving force. And, um, it was probably not the most intelligent thing that, that I, I have done um, because it, it, it sort of, it does impact you um, 
it, it, it's much better to do those things when you're young and stupid, as opposed to when you're older and stupid. Um, <clears throat> so, so how much training was involved to climb Everest? I didn't really uh, appreciate uh, what it would take. And I wrote to um, Russell Bryce, who was who ran uh, uh, um, Himalayan Experience, a company that a lot of people would probably know about, sort of the, 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 the big bad man of, of Everest. And he told me, you know, you have to go and, you know, do McKinley. Uh, you, you would have to, to, to climb a, an 8,000 meter peak on oxygen and you would have to do all of these other things. And then, then you would have to apply and maybe you could do it. So I did, I started, I went and did all these things. Um, and I, I, I climbed uh, Manaslu with Russell um, in 2008. And we got stuck there actually. Uh, it was when the uh, economic crash occurred. We were uh, on the mountain uh, in uh, July, August and September. And there was a horrific uh, crash. Um, a lot of people killed on one of the flights going into Luke, into Lukla. And uh, all the helicopters were, um, were uh, taken by the government and we couldn't get out of, out of uh, Manuslu for, uh, oh, I don't know, four, four weeks. We were, we were stuck at base camp. We, we could, we'd finished the climb, we just couldn't leave. And uh, we didn't have a clue, by the way, that the, the, the world had collapsed economically. We didn't know, uh, we didn't have any communication. Um, so that was training. And then after I got down from Manuslu, um, um, I, I, I remember literally coming back from, uh, took two or three days to get back to base camp from the summit. And I walked into Russell Bryce's tent and I said, right, Russell, put me on the Everest team, which was a stupid thing to say because he did. And then about um, uh, six months later, I went back to uh, Kathmandu and, uh, and then we, we did Everest. So it was a lot of training. I, 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 I swore not to use an elevator or escalator for a year. So I even uh, climbed up a 22 story building when I was at a meeting in San Francisco with my bags. That was like the sort of brutal punishment uh, that, I, that I did. So how fit and sporty were you before you started on this mission? Well, you know, tennis and cricket aren't exactly, you know, the, well, cricket at least is not the, the, the uh, sport that requires the, the, the sort of uh, training that uh, you need for Everest. So I would say not much. Cricket in America? No, I, I, I. I watch cricket in America, unfortunately. It's the only thing that I can do in cricket here. Yes, all it. So cricket was one of your sports to get fit and you, had, you, you participated through watching it. <laughs> <laughs> Five days of sitting there waiting for something to happen. Brilliant. <laughs> what can I say? <laughs> anyway. But, for all this, you did manage it and you raised money for Cytometry for Life. And 
you talked a bit a little while ago about the importance of creating low-cost diagnostics but it's not the diagnostics itself it's the equipment and quite often to enable the experiments to be undertaken and I, I can see why the company struggle with this uh, it's not even if you made the instrument cheap enough for someone to build themselves uh, in, in financially more challenged countries than ourselves to get a clinician to adopt that to build it to support it so to, to, yeah, even if they could build it the first time they need to make sure it stays within specification so that, so the assay results are coming robustly back it's not trivial for a non-expert who's actually their main priority seeing patient after patient after patient it, i can see why it's so hard to sell uh and, and to get something that it's possible it has to be possible but I can see the challenge behind it. Uh, so, so where where are you now with this ambition? Well, one always has ambitions. Um, achieving them uh, takes, I think, uh, some a little bit of luck and a lot of hard work, um, and um, and even more planning. Um, I'm, I, I have some interesting ideas <clears throat> for future technologies. Um, I consider the current spectral instruments as um, intermediary step, actually. Uh, I think I call them Gen 1 instruments. And I, I have uh, some, some ideas for Gen 2. Uh, quite different, but expanding on the spectral technology significantly. And uh, I think addressing a lot of the issues that the clinical world has concerns about and things that we aren't addressing in, in the field of flow. We've, we're really, we're very, we're traditionalists. We, um, we, we do like to, to do things the same way for a long period of time because it works. And um, so um, I think there is a, a, a bright future. And I am, and so yeah, I have some ideas that I'm not going to tell you all of them right now, but um keep, I was gonna keep say keep... no, no, do, I'll write it down, but you've been recorded, so it'd have been fine. <laughs> you could just, <laughs> just, just give away all your IP now. <clears throat> so I think technology still got a long way to go without question. It's something, and I know the flow cytometry field, uh, I think, as you said, likes, doesn't, it, it doesn't take change very easily. It will do steps, but those steps are quite hard to, to get them up the step. And once you're up the step, the floodgates open. Yes. Uh, I think that's very true for flow cytometry, not necessarily of other fields themselves. I wonder how much of that is driven by the companies resisting to a degree because their large market is a clinical market and the clinical world takes a lot longer to to progress, to, to, to move up. And maybe that's why in the research field, I think we are far quicker to adopt new technologies, new ideas. Uh, but maybe some of the companies don't follow that as swiftly as maybe it would help the research community. Whereas in the world of microscopy, it's all research. That's the bigger driver, is the research side. 
So that I guess they get pandered over and they get their wishes rather fast to or faster to market than we do in the flow world. I say extraordinary time. How long did it take for the for the spectral flow to go from idea through to a commercial product? <clears throat> well, the idea started um, uh, when I visited uh, Scott Fraser uh, in his lab. It was like 20 years ago. And I noticed that uh, he had developed this thing that turned out to be product that Zeiss sold called the Meta. Uh, spectral and I looked at that and thought you know we could do this on a flow cytometer and first thing I did when I got back is order this 32 channel PMT from Hamamatsu and then we had to work out how to uh, collect the data and um, that took a couple of years to to get a 32 channel uh, ADC and um, build the system we probably built five six versions of that system using every type of, um, of grating and holographic grating and you know we pulled spectrometers to pieces i tried to to to, to make a custom grating and it was going to cost me about twenty five thousand dollars at the time just to make a single custom grating i couldn't afford it so we did the best we could and we, we spent about three years um, building iterations of the instrument. They were monstrous. Built them on an uh, Epics um, Elite, if I recall. And um, um, the first data we got, we had no idea how to interpret it. And we actually had to go back and start again and add a functional six channel flow cytometer on, onto it and split the light. And the irony of this is, Peter, I wrote an NIH grant to develop this technology. And um, it was considered to be um, the, the, the pink sheets, which is what we call, used to call the review sheets, because they used to come on pink paper, yep. believe it or not. Um, the pink sheet said that uh, it's an interesting, but a really unneeded uh, technology and it wouldn't work anyway because there wouldn't be enough photons to split across so many detectors. And it was proven in the meta. Yeah, there's a lot of irony about the way uh, NIH grants and others get reviewed. You've probably got stories of, of uh, anyway, I still have those pink sheets. I keep them because they remind me that um, you shouldn't believe what reviewers always say about. But anyway, they took some years and it wasn't until 2012, I think that Sony who licensed the patent produced the first commercial instrument. So there was like 12 years from, you know, thinking about how to do it to when someone could actually buy a, a machine. It's an incredible length of time. I, I like the bit about the pink sheets because that is true. And actually anyone starting out in their career, I don't know, when, when you get a knockback, so when you get that rejection, uh, you read the you read the reviews. You think, okay, I might still have a chance. I might not have a chance. Or I don't know. In our case, we get to see the reviews quite often, and get a chance to rebut them, and then go back and you cross fingers. Will you get funded or not? Sometimes you do, sometimes you don't. And then you read the reviews back, and yes, it can be upsetting for a while. 
But but what is your reaction when you get a grant rejected? What what is your what's your process at that point? Well, I, I at, at that point in those days, I, I was probably you know very upset about it because the people that reviewed this were the leaders of the field. They they were. You know, I don't know the name of the individual who wrote that particular review, but I know everybody who was on the study section. And, and you know who's going to be given in a study section. As I've sat on, I don't know, dozens and dozens and dozens, maybe hundreds of study sections altogether. Uh, so, you know, but I, I, I think these days uh, I still get grants rejected. I mean, we all... Anyone who doesn't get grants rejected probably isn't writing enough grants. Um, you, you just have to get used to it. Um, and you have to go back to square one. Or not writing any grants, because then you can't get rejected either. <laughs> well, yeah, that's, I don't, I don't uh, advocate that pathway if you want <laughs> to maintain a research environment. Um, writing grants is important because it's uh, making you think through what the objective is, what the potential results will be and what the impact will be. And you, you, you know, you cannot argue that uh, grant reviews are not uh, valuable. They are, even if you don't agree with the reviews, you have to take them into consideration. If, if they didn't, if you didn't write it in a way that that the reviewers appreciated your position, well, you need to rewrite it. And that's the reality of, of, of research, isn't it, really? Uh, yeah, I, I don't think I've ever gone back. I think when I re never resubmitted a grant per se, but you take the same work and you spin it in a slightly different way and put it back. I think the second application is always stronger than the first one that I put in. I still think the first one should have been funded, of course. But I can see sometimes how it's actually benefited to having that 12 months of maturity over the idea, maybe assembling a slightly different team of collaborators to make it stronger has helped, not hindered. So actually, I'm only upset until I go to sleep. And the next morning I wake up wanting to go back stronger. So, so it only affects me until I go to sleep and the next morning it is back at it. And let, let's show them, let's prove it wrong. Let's make it stronger. Let's address those weaknesses and concerns. Right. Absolutely. So what has been, I, 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 it's quite a serious conversation. What has been the most challenging time then in your career? <clears throat> well, I think the, the most challenging time was when, when, when I, I, I went through this period of time in my life of, um, of struggling with these low cost instruments and <clears throat> setting up the uh, cytometry for life. <clears throat> and uh, at that time too, I was, you know, running a, a, a big core lab with flow cytometry and imaging all together. And I actually dropped that. I, 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 I decided that uh, actually in the middle of this year of climbing is when I, 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 I walked away from running a, a big core lab because I, I decided that uh, it was restricting what I needed to do myself in many ways. And that was a big challenge for me, that, that period of, <clears throat> of, of time in my life um, when um, uh, I, I really had to do something different. <clears throat> and I did so many things different. I, I, 
I stopped running a core lab. I had to move people in my lab into other jobs. I had to go find jobs for them around the university because I reduced the size of my lab. It had been quite large, very large. And I decided to make it smaller and focus on, on, re, on, on re, just research rather than you know, doing the things that all the core labs have to do. Um, so that was probably the most challenging time. It's, it's a big thing, you know, when you have a couple of hundred people that rely on your lab and then you, you stop doing that and hand that to somebody else and then go off and, and, and do something differently. But did those jobs not go with the core facility part? Because obviously the core must have maintained to a degree. So did they not move to, to sort of new ownership, as it were, for the core facility? Uh, they hired new people uh, and basically built a new core. We won't carry on down that path. <laughs> any regrets? Well, I must say that I regret not living in Sydney. <laughs> uh, having spent many years there, it's a beautiful city and uh, um, it, it's very different living in Midwest of the United States. Of course we can, well, we used to be able to go and get on a plane and actually travel anywhere we wanted. Uh, so it really probably doesn't make much difference, but um, I, I, I don't think I have too many regrets. I think, uh, I think life's been very good to me and um, um, I'm, uh, I'm quite satisfied. Uh, okay, so some really quick fire questions. Coffee or tea? If I'm in the United Kingdom or Australia, it's tea. If I'm in the United States, it's coffee. Uh, coffee's got better over here. You can drink coffee as well, you know. <laughs> uh, sweet or savoury? Sweet. Beer or wine? Oh, absolutely red wine. There red isn't anything else. Okay. Australia or USA? Oh, I think Australia is most definitely the greatest country. Okay, you better hope that Donald Trump doesn't get re-elected, otherwise you're about to be your one ticket way, your one ticket back <laughs> at that point. I'm, I'm, I'm going to stay away from the, the current political environment. It's too uh, the, the politics are always interesting, certainly over here. There's, uh, it's not a good time to be a politician, though, either, in any, in any walk, way, walk of life. Uh, what's, what's your, what's your favourite grape, then, red wine? Oh, cabs. Cabs have for sure. Yeah. Mm. You're in America, surely is, surely is Infandel over no, in the US. Absolutely not. Oh, <clears throat> Rockbusters Infandel, you can't beat us in. Not in my cellar. I might have one or two bottles, but probably and not. Not a Shiraz? Not a true Aussie Shiraz? Yeah, yeah, lots of Shiraz because big Australian, uh, Australian big Shirazes, Penfolds, yeah. So through those hard times, uh, you have your coffee, you get some chocolate, you're drinking your red wine. What do you sit back to? Do you, do you watch book or book or TV? What's your preference? Books. I, 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 I'm not a big TV person. No. Okay. So, what are you reading anything at the moment? Well, I've read uh, I've read a lot of books. Uh, on uh, the current political climate because they seem to be coming out about every other day. 
So um, I've read probably six or eight uh, of the sort of recent political books. Um, and uh, it's quite useful to, to get this background from people, uh, journalists who, 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 who live this stuff. So that's been what I've been reading mostly. Yeah, and what about music? What genre of music are you into? <clears throat> Dark Side of the Moon, <laughs> Pink Floyd. Um, yeah, I, I don't listen to a lot of music. I've, I find that, um, that I can't work so well uh, like I used to when I was young, listening to music and working. So it's, a, it's, it's something that I, I, I can only do when I want to just listen to the music. Okay, that, that's interesting. Pink Floyd, Dark Side of the Moon. Is that because of the album cover or just because that is, if you even thought about that, the fact that that is a perfect illustration of spectral. Yeah. Uh, it, we use that as an example when we're teaching students, think about Dark Side of the Moon, most know yeah. the album cover and you've got your spectral split. So is that just by coincidence? Probably not because I, I still have, uh, I think two copies of the original album. Um, I used to buy two copies of every record when I was in college um, because I would play one on my turntable and the other one wouldn't be played because once you play it a couple of times, uh, it doesn't have the same uh, uh, quality. And I used to buy two copies of every record. I mean, so I still have, um, I think, an unopened copy of Dark Side of the Moon from yeah. 19, the, the 40 years ago. So, Paul, back, back to work itself. <clears throat> you have a funniest, mo a funniest moment in work, whether that be at conference or in the lab. You know, I, I, really, uh, I really can't think of... Uh, of, of funniest moments. Um, I, I suppose oddest moment would be in 1995 or I, I think early 96 before the, um, the Italian uh, ISAC meeting, we produced uh, our first CD when we produced all these uh, CDs in those days. And we had to make the CD, we had to package it. And uh, all the pieces of the case and the covers, and we had my whole lab lined up at our conference table with all these piles and everybody was putting pieces together of these CDs. And it's sort of an ironic moment. I, I have a photograph of it somewhere, I think, but it's odd to think there was a time a, when we used CDs, and two, when CDs were the latest, greatest thing that ever existed. And uh, many people in the modern generation will probably never even buy a CD, and why would they, right? So they didn't appreciate the difficulty that uh, perhaps we had to deal with. Uh, at least so the at least as a biochemist, a CD now means circular dichroism again. So there is benefits to this. Or, 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 or yeah, yeah, a cluster of differentiation. Yes. <laughs> uh, quick question. A career highlight. What do you think has been the highlight of your career? 
Most proud moment? I, I don't know. Um, I think from the perspective of, of the, my field of interest was, was when, when I had the opportunity to, to uh, be president of the ISAC Society. I think to me that, that was my, my proudest time where when your fellows recognize, when your peers recognize uh the the uh the impact you have i th i think that's that's definitely a highlight for me well we certainly certainly uh i think you had a lot of influence when you were there as president for isaac and certainly raised its profile significantly as well so you also made a the career highlight you made a big impact at that point and that i think when you become president of a society that's really important you can't just sit there uh, and you didn't, and you did make a change. And I think that's, yeah, well done again. So that's, again, big credit to the, from the cytometry community as a whole. What about your favourite publication that you've been an author or co-author on? Oh, I, I don't know. It's probably a paper that uh, nobody ever saw. Um, a paper I published in 1990 on, um, um, on a different way of analysing flow data by collecting all the data in a single file and then displaying it in some very odd ways. We called one a phenogram. And uh, I think it's been referenced three times in the literature. <clears throat> and, and yet I think it was a classic a paper where it, it recognized that, you know, just looking at a histogram that we, we, we see or a dot plot is not just a simple way of analyzing flow data that you need to diversify, you need to think of it differently. And we did, and, um, um, but nobody cared at the time. And that I think hurts from a scientific perspective, but I look back at that paper in 1991 or 92 uh, as, as one, of the, one of actually a really important paper. The fact that nobody saw it um, but now I think if you look at all the sorts of interesting ways that people analyze data, TISNY, UMAP, all these things, we weren't doing anything as sophisticated as that, but conceptually we were transforming data into different ways of display, so different that it was not even understood at the time. So that's, yeah, I think three references to that paper. Yeah, so only... 30 years ahead of your time at that point. Yeah, maybe. 37. <laughs> Give or take a few. Who's been your inspiration? In both your career, driven, I, I, I guess as many people who, who've inspired you over time, but what were your big, mo who, who's helped motivate you and inspire you throughout your own career? I, I think Spisak Darzenkiewicz um, and Howard Shapiro. Um, were two individuals that um, have had tremendous impact on me. Um, Spisak was, uh, when he was president of ISAC, invited me uh, to be on a committee. And I'd never been on a committee in the society. And that committee work uh, got, I, I, I got to know the people on the committee and uh, it was the membership services committee. And um, 
it was from that that we put together a handbook. I, I took the handbook to Handbook of Flow Cytometry to the committee. And we ended up publishing it with everybody's names on that committee. And, and those names, including Darzenkevich's name, was what people saw. They didn't have a clue who I was. But people like Spisak, I think, um, uh, is definitely one of my scientific heroes and a hero in our field. And, and of course, Howard. Um, and I'm probably forgetting many other people, but uh, those are two that would absolutely stand out. Times move forward, but that's great to hear those uh, very inspirational people behind your own career. A couple of last points, I end up on, a, on some bits. Do you have any secret vices? Any, any sort of item? Mine is watching trashy TV. So do you have any secret vices yourself to, to relax and chill and just, just not to have to think about work and to free the mind up? I like to build stuff. So yeah. I go down into my basement workshop and I build stuff. Um, I, 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 I'll try to build anything. It doesn't matter. I, would, I will try it. I, I, you know, I'll, I like building stuff and uh, construction, you know, plumbing, bricklaying electrical, anything that takes me away from reading scientific literature. I, I, I've got a hammer in my hand or a chisel or a drill. Yeah, that's my, my vice. And I have a great workshop. I love it. So, so I, I, I've now got an impression of you in a basement, bricklaying and plumbing in a basement. Yeah, with a drill. <laughs> it's just, just, I'm not even going to ask anymore. And finally, do you have a favorite science joke or just a favorite joke? No, but I always tell my students about Murphy's Law, that Murphy's Law says that it takes 80% of the time to do the first 80% of the work, and it takes the other 80% of the time to do the other 20% of the work. And I know it sounds stupid, but Murphy had some really uh, important uh, things to, to gain from him and or her, whoever Murphy was. And uh, that to me speaks to how science works. Okay, Paul, we are at the top of the hour now. So it's been, thank you for agreeing to do this chat with me. Uh, I'm flattered that you've agreed to it and you have been brilliant to talk to, listen to. Uh, and I hope everyone else has really enjoyed listening to such a great career. So many different aspects from Cytometry for Life, the Purdue site, the climb of Everest, and even the challenges you've had throughout writing grants. And yeah, even the greatest get grants kicked back with some of the best ideas. And the secret is don't give up, never yep. give up on those things. So, Paul, thank you so much for today. Pleasure thank was you. mine, Peter. Thank you. Bye. Cheers.